Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at Patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie. Want to take a moment to thank my top patrons there: Chris Balga, Jeff Whitman, Philip Barker, and Michael Cross. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. And if you sign up, you do get a weekly bonus episode of just everything else I'm watching that week. Like for instance, I'm watching, you know, the book of Boba Fett and quite a few other movies and things that people ask me about. So we have a lot of fun on there. Uh, and if you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. Uh, I've got a returning guest, a familiar voice on the podcast. I've got John Rogers. Say hi, John. Hi, John. Hey, John. <laughs> Hello, everyone. John is very active in our Facebook group, and he's also, you know, been on the show quite a few times. Uh, John, why don't you introduce yourself in case our listeners haven't heard you yet? Okay. Well, I'm John Rogers. If you follow the Facebook group, I'm the guy that lists favorite movies on Turner Classic Movies every week. And I have had the pleasure of being on here, I think, three earlier times. We talked about Casablanca and Dazed and Confused and To Kill a Mockingbird. And now I, another movie that I love, which is why we call it this. I love this movie. Yeah. Well, John, I like you said, I, I always let my guests pick the movie. What, what movie did you choose to talk about today? Apollo 13. This came out in 1995. I remember seeing it in theaters. When, when was the first time you saw it? In theaters as well? Uh, yes, I saw it in a theater, but I'm old enough to remember when these incidents actually happened. Was it 69? Is that what? Uh, is uh, that 70. 70. 70. Uh, 70 okay. Yeah. Uh, Armstrong walked on the moon in summer of 69, and this was the following right. spring. This was over uh, uh, Easter. Of the following spring in 70. I was in the eighth grade. Wow. So did you feel like at that time, it must have, okay, so you know, we, we walk on the moon and then this happens. I, I bet there was a time, did y'all feel like we were just going to go to the moon all the time? Like, hey, I guess we'll go to the moon yeah, often, uh, now that we can I do it. I, I grew up, you know, in uh, as a kid in the 60s and that would be as you got to remember in the 60s, we only had three TV channels, but on days that they would send up a Mercury rocket or uh, a Gemini rocket, uh, they had the one TV in our elementary school in the, in the school cafeteria so that we could watch the liftoff of these rockets. And my wow. father worked in the aerospace industry. He worked Oh, for, I didn't know that. Yes, he worked for LTV which was a subcontractor for Grumman, which made the lunar module. Wow. And the, that's incredible. The, yeah. In the movie, there's a representative of Grumman. I, I'm like, that's, that's my dad. <laughs> the character. That's so I crazy. Cried, that's yes. awesome. And, uh, but yeah, those, those early astronauts were our big heroes. Uh, uh, June 20th, uh, 1969, you know, we, uh, when Armstrong walked on the moon, uh, they landed on the moon that afternoon. And I was a regular churchgoer at the time. And we were all concerned that uh, uh, our preacher wouldn't let us out of church in time to see him <laughs> come down the ladder. Cause that happened about nine o'clock that night. Our wow. Time. 
And, but we did, we got to see that and it was like, whoa, you know, this, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, That's awesome. It, it was, yes. Well, normally, you know, I say that uh, I give a warning that there'll be spoilers, but I feel like, you know, our listeners, hopefully you're aware of Apollo 13 and <laughs> what happened. Yeah. But I, just in case you're not, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read a quick synopsis of what we're going to talk about. So this is a Hollywood drama based on the events of the Apollo, uh, Apollo 13 uh, lunar mission. You know, it involves astronauts Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert. And, you know, everything going according to plan after leaving Earth's orbit, but then when an oxygen tank explodes, uh, the scheduled moon landing is called off, and the subsequent tensions within the crew and the numerous technical problems threaten both the astronaut's survival and their safe return to Earth. I have to say, like, I can't imagine how intense this was in real time, because it's like, you know, for me, this is something that I read about in history books. Right. And I sort of take for granted, but I think the movie does a really good job of kind of communicating. Like, I mean, honestly, like if I was a kid and I saw their oxygen tank exploded and they're trying to get them back, I would just be like, they're not coming back. Like, this is truly a miracle to me that they were able to bring them back to Earth. Well, that's the personal anecdote I wanted to share with you that I mentioned. Oh, go for it. Oh, yes. Uh, eighth grade had a wonderful history teacher, uh, Miss Stewart. And... This was back when you could, well, I don't remember if uh, the rule had been passed or anything yet that teachers couldn't lead us in prayer in school, but she came into class one day and led us in a prayer for the astronauts. Oh. And again, uh, my my dad, again, worked for LTV, uh, Link Temco Vought, which was a subcontractor for Grumman at the time. And anytime I saw my dad, who was a let's see was it quality procurement engineer basically he made sure that incoming parts to ltv came up to specs before they mm. made whatever component for the lunar module or later on the space shuttle or lots of boeing aircraft you know uh, so anyway when anytime my dad was around his colleagues you couldn't understand what they were talking about. They were speaking a foreign engineering language. <laughs> I'm sure. And uh, uh, and me, I'm math stupid. Uh, but so so Miss Stewart leads us in this prayer. And after the prayer was a whip, she had a tear running down her face. And I said, Miss Stewart, I guarantee you that they had the smartest men in the world working to get those guys back. Yeah. You know, uh, and then years later, Jim Lovell's book upon which this film uh, came out, it was originally called Lost Moon. And then after the film came out, they changed it to Apollo 13 and made the cover of the book look like a movie poster. Oh. But I read that book and 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 you see from this film or from reading that book, they really did have the smartest men in the world working to get those guys home. It's incredible what they were able to accomplish. It's yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I haven't seen this movie in such a long time. Haven't thought about this event in a long time, but it's such a perfect film to generate a lot of hope. You know, it's a good choice because it really happened and it is really incredible what they were able to achieve. Um, this is directed by Ron Howard who makes an appearance in the film. When I saw him, I was like, Oh my gosh, he's so young. <laughs> Still kind of looks like Richie. I Wow, I don't remember Ron Howard. I think he uh, is, his, isn't he? Maybe brother, I'm making that up. Oh, I, was it I, his brother? His brother played uh, one of the, uh, he played uh, a technician called Ecom. Uh, okay, I think that's yeah. who I'm thinking of then. Yeah, there was someone uh, that looked just like him. Well, Ron and... He had and, red hair and everything. Uh, uh, oh, I know who you're thinking of. Uh, and I'd... I'd don't believe that was Ron Howard. There was, oh, a red okay, okay. there was a redheaded Capcom. Okay, before we get into there's a lot of turn. This movie is heavy on the techno speech, but you don't have to understand it all to be able to follow the story. For but sure. A Cap, but a Capcom, and one of them was redheaded, and the other one was played by a, a oh, uh, Brett Cullen. Capcoms were astronauts. Uh, NASA had a 
tradition that goes all the way back to the early uh, Mercury program that only an astronaut would talk to the astronauts out in space. That oh, any really? Orders, that any orders from the flight director, which was played by uh, Ed Harris, went through the CAPCOM, Capsule Communications, and that would be an astronaut. And uh, mm. they would take turns uh, being the uh, Capcom for the mission. And there, one of the actors that played a Capcom was redheaded. And, and that might be who you're thinking of. Yeah, uh, I thought that was him. He looked but, just like uh, him. Ron Howard's little brother, what's his name, uh, played uh, one of the played uh, one of the technicians. And oh, okay. He, he's bald headed, wears glasses. Mm. Uh, uh, anyway, I've got my list of cast members here. But I, I don't remember. I, you know, I've seen this thing a gazillion times. Okay, so I, I have not. Seeing, so I could have been I mistaken for sure. I don't remember seeing <laughs> Ron Howard. In, although Ron's mom and dad are both in it as well. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Clint, Clint Howard is the little brother. Oh, okay, he, Clint Howard. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I've got a couple of, of quick facts I wanted to share, too, um, about the film. Just real quick, and then we'll dive into I'm sure you have way more than I do. But uh, one of them I had was that in some scenes where the Earth can be seen from the windows of Apollo 13, it is one of the photos taken from by Jim Lovell and Bill Anders on the Apollo 8 mission. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, Apollo 8. That was the first time we actually went to the moon. They did not land. That was the first time they went and flew around the moon. That was the first time we got to see the dark side of the moon from wow. those photographs that uh, Jim Lovell uh, took. And uh, and it was so great because it was Christmas Eve. And this is another wow. one I remember. It was Christmas Eve, and as they flew around the moon, I'm going to get choked up just thinking about it. As they flew, I mean, that's the moon, awesome. They read the creation story from Genesis 1 in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. While you know, while they were transmitting these images of the moon back to the earth, uh, Jim Lovell, had this was his fourth mission in space. Uh, wow. And turned out to be the last. Yeah. I, I also read that, you know, I'm he's had others since, but at least at the timing, uh, at the time when this was made, this is, his favorite of all his films. Yeah. And Roger Ebert called it his best film up to that point. Yeah. I mean, I could see why it's so personal. I think for everyone, you know, around, uh, that was around, around that time too, you know, it's just such a good story, but uh, yeah, I used to, I thought that I was used to cool. have the book and I, and I <laughs> got on Amazon today and ordered a used copy of it. I'm sorry. I didn't. Oh, get nice. It for this, but uh, oh, no the making of, but Ron Howard, uh, well, I remember him like on the Carson show or whatever, doing promo for this film and Johnny, uh, or whoever the guest host was asked of what he remembered about Apollo 13. And Ron Howard said, not really very much from when it was happening because he was out in Wyoming or someplace filming an episode of Gunsmoke. Oh, really? Wow. And, oh, uh, Gunsmoke. We just talked about that in, in our last episode when we were talking about <laughs> Pill Rider. How funny. <laughs> yeah, a, but he was a, a guest star on an episode of Gunsmoke, and so they were off in the wilderness someplace filming exteriors for Gunsmoke and didn't really hear a whole lot about it. Oh, gosh, then, how interesting. But then he read Jim Lovell's book, and ah. you know, uh, and as you can see, it's, it is such a gripping story that he was talked into very easily into making it into this film. Yeah. The other thing that I had was that, you know, filming inside the zero gravity plane could only happen in 25 second bursts. Mm -hmm. So the plane performs 612 dives, giving filmmakers 54 <laughs> minutes of footage in a weightless environment, which is, I feel like something that we wouldn't, I don't know that we would do it that practically today. Right. Like there's like other, methods yeah. for making things seem weightless but something we really take for granted you know that we right. have to do differently cgi, CGI <laughs> was in its infancy when this uh, film was made so yeah they were still doing uh things with models and 
and traveling mats and yeah uh, uh, when I rewatched it last week I borrowed a DVD from the library and on one of the uh, special features uh, Kevin Bacon talked about that you know what they called that plane don't you the that vomit fuel. comet yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember that from school. <laughs> uh, but Kevin Bacon talked about it. He, he said that if you see their whole body and they're floating around, then that was a vomit comet shot. And uh, Ugh, gosh, it, I, no, I would hate that. <laughs> but they also, yeah. And they actually had to, you know, just take parts of their set because the set's not very big anyway. The uh, lunar module's only about the size, well, the command module, the one with the free seats, uh, it's about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Oh, and really? The, and the lunar module uh, is, uh, well, uh, uh, Lovell says it, or Tom Hanks says, Lovell says it in the movie, it's about the size of two phone booths. Uh, wow. So, yeah, it is by selective angles and stuff like that that they would have you know tom hanks or kevin bacon or whomever floating around and a piece of the set behind them but you know you've only got that 25 seconds and they would have to start looking around for a place to land that wasn't mm -hmm. a set piece that was part of the padding that they had in in the plane but the bacon also said even though there's quite a few of those shots in there that most of the time, if it's a close up or a two shot, that they're just kind of flexing their knees, look making it look like they're floating around. And uh, <laughs> there's, there's one shot where you see uh, Tom Hanks and Bill Paxton right side up to us, but in the background, Kevin Bacon is upside down. He was really mm. hanging from his knees on oh my a, gosh. Like a chinning bar. <laughs> Duh. Yeah, see, this is the part where, I, if I'm honest, space doesn't really appeal to me <laughs> because it just sounds miserable. I know this is like the filming of, but I get right. I get seasick pretty easily, so I don't I don't know if I'd be cut out for filming it or going into space. <laughs> well, well, now they would do it with CGI and yeah, uh, and things like that. But I think the you know and that's what is cool about it is. And, then, and not only the space shots, but Mission Control, they went into such exacting detail mm -hmm. of recreating Mission Control the way it looked in 69-70. Uh, and they had real uh, technicians from uh, NASA come and take a look at it. And the uh, one critique one of them had was, you don't have any ashtrays. Right. Because back, <laughs> back then, everybody smoked. Everybody I know this. Smoked. And so they went out and bought a bunch of ashtrays, and you see uh, these technicians smoking in the uh, in the movie, which they hadn't really even thought about. So funny how, you know, even to this day, that's that's always up for debate when depicting a different time period. It's like, do you include all the cigarettes or not? Like, that's that's still a hot topic you know mm -hmm. like i remember in, in stranger things um i think in the first season people were smoking and because kids watch it they were criticizing it like hey you know maybe we shouldn't have all these people smoking it's like well it's the 80s like people smoked <laughs> things change what something you said earlier on you know about spoilers yes this is a historical event we we know they made it back all right blah blah that but what is amazing is how Howard and his editors create this sense of tension. Yes, uh, very true. Because really, and, I mean, we, we're so limited in our knowledge of what's going on that they have to communicate how intense it actually is. Now, there's something that they, uh, again, I was listening to Jim Lovell's, uh, Jim and his wife, uh, and I'm sorry, I cannot remember her name. But on the DVD, there's an audio track you can select where they're doing commentary. And uh, he would point out and say, okay, this is a little bit of dramatic license here to make it seem like a, a little more dramatic than what it seemed at the time. And while, yes, the possibility of being stuck out in space forever is pretty dramatic, uh, 
he said, these guys were just doing their jobs. Everybody was just doing their jobs. And the scene between Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxton where they get into an argument, uh, the real level says that didn't really happen. That was created to add some more tension, dramatic tension to the movie. And uh, uh, Kevin Bacon's character is kind of portrayed as a rookie, mm-hmm. uh, untested rookie. And Lovell says, hey, this guy knew his job. He wrote, uh, Jack Swaggart wrote the uh, emergency operations manual for the command module. Wow. He knew that he knew that craft inside and out. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's yeah. and he said, you know, there's a scene where they have to dock the uh, command module to the lunar module. They have to turn the, the command module around, go back to the service bay thing and pull the lunar module out. That's the part that would, would have actually landed on the moon. And that's seen as a very critical point, and that's what uh, Jack Swigert's character was. You know, everybody's wondering, okay, park that thing, rookie, and all that. And uh, Lovell said, "Hey, if Jack hadn't got it the first time, well, he would have just tried again. And then if he wouldn't have tried it, I've done that operation before. I would have given it a shot." <laughs> and yeah, I can see how they they needed some entertainment license to. Right. Add some drama, yeah. But that's Maybe. nice of him, though, to to interject with that because, I mean, yeah, it's you know, I think in the movie there's sort of, I mean, it's Tom Hanks, right? We talk right. about Tom Hanks on this podcast like once a month. I feel like we have a Tom <laughs> Hanks movie, but we've got Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon. I mean, this is making these you know astronauts look like cowboys, rock stars, right? And I do think that's kind of like the public perception of them as well. So I think you know they they had to make it more entertaining but i'm i'm glad that jim lovell you know said that about jack cuz that's important to know you know he he was yeah. a professional and the thing is by the time this movie was filmed jack swaggart had passed away so it's kind of like in a, a similar thing in uh the right stuff gus grissom is seen to be a kind of a foul up a bit uh but he's the astronaut that died in the Apollo 1 fire, so he wasn't there to defend himself or set the record straight. And that's the sort of the thing here. And yes, you're right. Uh, Jim Lovell is a hell of a guy for sticking up for his comrade uh, who didn't have a voice uh, in how he was portrayed. And Andy also said that the movie gives the Gary Sinise character, uh, Ken Mattingly, who also is no longer with us, uh, a little more, I won't say credit, but makes it seem like he did a lot more than the real Jim Mattingly did. Yes, Jim Mattingly did work on the startup. Is, is it Jim or Ken? Ken Mattingly, thank you. Oh, yeah, uh, no uh, worries. I'm just looking at a list of them. <laughs> yeah, Ken Mattingly, Jim Lovell, and Jack Schweigert. Uh, yeah. And Fred Hayes. And, uh, uh, yeah, but they said that from the time that the Ken Mattingly goes into the simulator to try to work out the puzzle of restarting the command module without using up all the power. He said that was really a team of people doing that. Sure. I'm sure it always is. On his own. And it also shows Ken Mattingly being the Capcom at the end. That is again, pretty much so they wouldn't have to hire another actor because the real Ken Well, to, and, and, and also so audiences don't have to juggle so many characters in their heads. You know, like yeah. sometimes they kind of combine characters just to make it a little bit easier. Uh, yeah, like there were so many people in this thing named John. <laughs> uh, there was John Aaron, who was working with Ken Mattingly on the uh, on the startup procedure. There was a, the uh, astronaut that was their backup, the dark-haired astronaut. His name was, I don't remember uh, his last name, but his name was John, and he's hitting the same scenes with John Aaron, and you're like, "Oh my God, which John are they talking to?" <laughs> uh, and but but those were the, the names of the real people. It, it was yeah. interesting to me. Uh, Joe Spano plays. They just call him the the NASA head of NASA or something like that. That's based yeah. on a man named Christopher Kraft, Chris Kraft, uh, who ran. 
uh, NASA back in those days. And uh, I don't know why they didn't use Mr. Kraft's real name, uh, but uh, he was the head guy at NASA, you know, he's the guy that talked to the president. He's the guy that, that went to Congress for funding. And, uh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and Ed Harris, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, I love that Ed Harris is in this. <laughs> yeah. And, and, the, and, was, and it wasn't that many years after he played John Glenn in the right stuff. Oh, that's right. And, uh, and I've seen footage of the real Gene Krantz, and yeah, talk about square jawed. Uh, really? Yeah, and uh, he pretty much had the real Gene Krantz nailed. Uh, now, uh, again, they kind of give his team more credit against to streamline the storyline. Uh, listen, Mark McClure also plays a. Uh, light chief they work different shifts and uh, something i read someplace uh that mark mcclure's character i think it's another john uh <laughs> <laughs> uh that his shift was the shift that was actually on or was about to come on when the explosion happened wow glenn, glenn lunny not john lunny glenn lunny and uh, it was things that we see Ed Harris doing in the movie, Glenn Lunny in real life, Mark McClure's character did it. Like when you know, the room was going crazy, hey, we got this explosion, we got this readout showing this. He's the one that settled the room down in real life. So, you know, again, wow. you know, they, have to, they have to streamline the story, of course. And, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, Ed Harris. Uh, if if he wasn't nominated for a supporting actor, he should have been. I I feel like. Yeah, yeah. I think he did a really good job in this film. He, I mean, he always does. Love him. Yeah. Um. So we've kind of, you know, talked about some of the actors. Talked about Ron Howard, obviously. But do, are there some specific favorite scenes? I know we've talked about a couple of them, but some more favorite scenes that you want to talk about, you can go chronologically or, you know, however uh, you want. My favorite scene is the heroics of somebody that's not out there in space. Yeah. And this really happened. Uh, uh, because they're got three guys crammed into this spacecraft that was meant for two guys, their carbon dioxide level ex- accelerates goes up and um, they had these filters that clean the air mm-hmm. and the ones that were made for the command module which they've shut down because it's not working uh, are a different shape and size than the ones that they use in the lunar module mm. and uh, and the carbon dioxide levels are getting pretty high. And there's this uh, little technician. I say little. The the man who played him was not uh, not uh, very tall, not very big stature. He looks, and <laughs> you want to talk about revenge of the nerds? This movie is the <laughs> ultimate revenge of the nerds because it was a bunch <laughs> of nerds. With slide rules, they didn't even have pocket calculators yet. Right, they were yeah. Using slide rules and figuring uh, equations on pads with pencils. Uh, at one point, Kevin Bacon's character says, I know we're not going to make it back because I can add, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. People forget that, that we went to the moon on less technology that's in a pocket calculator. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Our cell phones have more technology in them than what the the spacecraft app but uh so this technician as and his team has to come up with a way to make the uh, command module air filters work in the lunar mm-hmm. module and uh and this comes from uh, also from jim lovell's book uh the term steely-eyed missile man <laughs> when uh when um they create this out of a 
spacesuit and duct tape and a plastic bag and stuff, this, this adapter. And the astronauts install it and it works. Uh, Brett Cullen, who's playing that Capcom, uh, when they realize it's working, he turns to the little technician guy and says, you, sir, are a steely-eyed missile man. And that, <laughs> according to Lovell's book, was the highest praise an astronaut could give to a non-astronaut that worked for NASA. Steely-eyed missile man. <laughs> That's funny. I love funny. that scene because, yeah, Revenge of the Nerds. It was the nerds with their slide rules and pencils and papers that got those guys back For home. sure. For sure. <clears throat> yeah, for you know, or what's another scene that you that you really enjoy? Uh, I know there's so know, many. Yeah, uh, you know I'm a sucker for dad son scenes, and the oh, early yeah. scene, and the early scene where Lovell is talking to his kid, and the kid asks about the Apollo One fire, and. You know, the kid's worried that something like that could happen to his daddy. And, you know, the kind of thing that Tom Hanks excels at, being everybody's dad, reassuring yes. his son <laughs> that the, the problems that Apollo 1 had had been fixed and uh, and uh, wouldn't be a problem for them. They wound up with other problems. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, so that's that's another favorite scene. Uh, well, and all the families, the family scenes. Yeah, I agree. I think even like the party they have in the beginning, and you know when they're uh, the the wife and uh, Tom Hanks and his wife are drunk and they're staggering outside, and <laughs> you know yeah. she's like, "Oh gosh, I'm not going to bed tonight." You know, we all know what that's like, and I don't know. It's just fun seeing them so normal and excited and right um, i love her line that's a good uh, one <laughs> it's after the party and, and they're out in the backyard and and she says i can't deal with cleaning this up let's just sell the house <laughs> yeah i love their house like that scene makes me really nostalgic i love like that layout with the chairs and the the print and everything it's like man we don't have like that kind of backyard and pool set up anymore i just really yeah. like it and the the that party scene with or the the watching party scene where they're watching Armstrong. Oh at yeah. The beginning. Uh, and then some of the groupings later on at the Lovell House when they're waiting for everybody when you have all those people. Those reminded me so much of those after church gatherings, fellowships that you'd have at somebody's house. Yeah, yeah. Except for the champagne in that first one. But <laughs> Yeah, when we were when when Nick and I were searching for a house, we there was a house that we almost bought that we were like, oh, this would be such a good place for a little get the the for gatherings. Like the layout was like very similar to like something like in this film. I think because the house was made in the seventies. In fact, my house now is made in the seventies as well. But yeah, I don't know. There's just something about gathering in in, in the sixties and seventies in that time. So I don't know. And that's something Mrs. Lovell talked about on that commentary track. Marilyn Lovell's her name. Kathleen Quinlan played her, and she did a fine job too. Oh yeah, uh, she did. I, I mean, I mean, everybody did. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, she talked. Uh, but the real Mrs. Lovell on that uh, audio track talked about how, when they were researching the film, the uh, uh, location scouts or whatever came to the Lovell house and took pictures of their house. And while the oh. movie house isn't exactly like their real house, she said it's very the styles and 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 things were. Uh, were pretty close uh yeah you know uh to the the styles back then and and the clothes you know they got the clothes right they got the haircuts right uh Lovell himself talked about because Tom Hanks is wearing sideburns he's like yeah we all wore sideburns back then <laughs> yeah and, uh, and when those, we, uh, when you're talking about family scenes one one scene that I find touching is when they visit I, I think it's Jim's mom mm-hmm and, you know, she's trying to watch the TV so that she can see her son. And then they, they break, which I'm almost like, why do they even tell her? Like, maybe don't tell her. I don't know. <laughs> right. that, maybe that's just my opinion. I'm like, I'm not sure if I would tell grandma what's going on. But they tell her, you know, the situation is kind of dire. 
and she has such encouraging words. And I, I just, I don't know. I really like that about this movie that like the odds are so stacked against them. And, but yet everybody seems to have this spirit of like, they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure out a way to come back home. Yeah. You remember the younger daughter starts crying and grandmom says, are you scared? And the little girl just nods her head. Yeah. Yes. She says, well, don't you worry, sweetheart. If they could get a washing machine to fly, my uh, Jimmy <laughs> would land it. Oh. <laughs> and yeah, and that was Ron Howard's mother that played that role. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, it's very moving and and very nice, you know. Yeah, it, it definitely captured a moment in time. And uh, the only critique I have, and... And Lisa, I can tell you, anytime this thing is on, if if I'm not watching anything else, it's at least playing <laughs> in the background. And I have watched this thing in Spanish. <laughs> it'll be on. It'll be on 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 uh, uh, one of the the Spanish stations, and I'll be flying by. Oh, there's Apollo 13. I I don't need to. I don't need to hear it. I know I've seen it so many times that uh, I know what they're saying. Uh, yeah. But. Uh, the visuals are great, but that's the one critique I do have is in Mission Control, and it's really evident near the end, uh, Ron Howard fell in love with this camera that he had that could move around pretty easily. Mm. You see shots like this a lot in concert videos where the camera's moving across the stage or something. He had this camera yeah. moving quite a bit in the Mission Control scenes. And there's one scene where Gary Sinise and two other actors are standing in a perfect triangle and the camera comes in on them and it's like they're perfectly playing. I'm like, that looks just a little too contrived to me. But, yeah. you know, uh, I, I think he got a little fancy with the camera work in Mission Control uh, from time to time. He, I think he fell in love with this this camera that could move around very easily and go in and out of <laughs> a new toy station. yeah and uh but yeah the, that three shot of those guys standing in this perfect triangle i'm like and eh, that looks kind of posed uh, <laughs> and that's like the only critique i have of this film yeah what do you think of like okay i i noticed in the film you know the wife uh she tells or marilyn she tells jim like that she's going to not take her son out of school. <laughs> this seems to be a sticking point between the two of them about, you know, watching uh, his launch and things like that while the kids are in school. I don't know. I, I found that kind of funny. Like you think yeah. there would be an exception. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. Uh, well, this was her fourth time. And well, oh, that's true. That's true. Is she, she, well, she tells uh, Tracy Reiner who played a uh, Bill Paxton's wife. Uh, uh, we we know her from a League of Their Own. Oh yeah, and uh, another movie we've talked about. Yeah, and uh, uh, she tells her at the launch that uh, this doesn't end for me till he lands on that aircraft carrier. Oh, okay, I, I okay, think yeah. the idea was this was incredibly stressful for her. I mean, because yeah, I can't imagine. I don't envy her. No. They're sitting <laughs> on top of a gigantic bomb. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, I get the idea that they were playing uh, Marilyn as this. She just really didn't want to put herself through that again. Mm -hmm. And But, of course, she does. Uh, just before the launch, there's a scene where she's taking a shower at, the, at the, her motel and she drops her wedding ring. Oh, yeah. And it goes down the drain. Uh, and it's kind of played very hyper dramatic. Uh, Marilyn sa uh, said that, the, yeah, that really did happen. She <laughs> dropped a ring in the shower, but it wasn't that big a deal. She just put her clothes on, got the building manager to come. Took, they took the grate off the, the thing and fished her ring out of the drain with a bent coat hanger or something. And said, really oh, that's good. Big a, really wasn't that big of a deal but it was kind of a nice symbolic moment in the movie yeah yeah more metaphorical for sure right yeah. like her uh, trepidation about the the number 13 uh, yeah said, yeah is an unlucky number and yeah, turned out to be 
Well, the real Marilyn says eh, it really didn't enter their minds that much, but it was good <laughs> in the movie. Um, yeah, it it was good for the movie. Um, another scene that kind of, well, a scene that bothered me, as you know, thinking from a modern day perspective, I guess, um, when I, I can't remember which astronaut, I guess it's I guess it's Bill Paxton's character is the one that's really sick, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and he. You know that they're monitoring his vitals, and they're like, "Hey, man, you have like a hundred degree fever. You really need to sleep." And he like rips off the the, <laughs> the little sensors, and then they all do. Right. And it's sort of like this kind of manly macho moment, like we don't need these things, and we're good. And I'm like, nowadays, I'm like, I don't like that. <laughs> Put those back on. You know, the fever thing is important, and they really should have taken that seriously. But maybe that's just me being kind of. A little yeah. bit of a hypochondriac and, and concern for them, but I'm like, you know, kids out there, it's not manly to ignore your symptoms, you know. Right. Take care of yourself. <laughs> especially these days. Yeah, especially these days. But yeah, it was like they're just trying to help you. And well, they really it, should have slept. They could have maybe slept a little bit. I don't know. But that's just me defending them on that yeah, front. And uh, at the same time, as sort of and this actually happened. So but it feeds into the irony of it, you know. Gary Sinise's character, Ken Mattingly, gets grounded because he had been exposed to the measles and he had never Oh, yeah, that's measles. right. And then they go up with uh, uh, Kevin Bacon's character, Jack Swigert, instead uh, as the uh, command module pilot. you got to remember, these guys had specific jobs, but all three of them could do each other's jobs. Tom oh, Hanks sure, sure. had been the command module pilot on Apollo 8, so he, mm-hmm. he knows how to fly. In fact, there's a well, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, yeah, that's the irony of the movie, though, that Gary Sinise's character was grounded because they feared he might get sick, and Bill Paxton's <laughs> character does get sick. Yeah. I mean, you know, you never know. Right. Was that true to life, too? Like, did he yes. actually get sick? Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, he, that'd he be got horrible. Sick. He, got, he got some sort of little flu bug or something, and uh, and it did get very cold up there because they had to shut everything down. And Jim Lovell talks about uh, how he really did put his arms around Fred Hayes to help him to warm up. Uh, Gosh, again, just not my cup of tea. I'll let someone <laughs> else do that. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, near the end. Uh, Tom Hanks, of course, Kevin Bacon's been back at the command module powering it up uh, again, mm-hmm. a process that they had to do just right had to do it in just the right order or they wouldn't have the systems that they needed to uh, uh, steer and deploy the parachutes and everything and Gary Sinise's character Ken Mattingly is walking him through that well Tom Hanks is still back in the uh, lunar module which has been their lifeboat shutting that thing down they had to they had to bring some items from the lunar module into the command module to simulate the weight of the moon rocks that they didn't bring back blah blah all that so mm. he's busy and uh so just before they're ready to start the re-entry procedure uh jim lovell comes back into the command module and again these guys have certain jobs and they have certain places to sit. Bill Paxton is the lunar module pilot and he sits in the right hand seat. Tom Hanks is the commander of the mission. He sits it sits in the center seat like Captain Kirk, okay? Yeah. And, uh, oh, okay. And Gary Sinise sits in the left hand seat because he's driving the command module. But, uh, but again, as as Lovell pointed out, all three of them could do each other's jobs. And in the way it was portrayed in the film, Kevin Bacon is the rookie who's untested stuff, although he is, again, very high, in real life, very highly trained and had written the emergency procedures book for the command module. He knew that thing inside and out. So you got yeah. this moment. Uh, Tom Hanks comes back into the command module. Kevin Bacon has moved into the center seat to help Bill Paxton strap in. And Tom Hanks absentmindedly sits down in the command module pilot seat. Right. And Kevin Bacon, Jack Swigert, turns around and sees uh, Captain Commander Lovell 
sitting in his seat and he thinks, oh my gosh, he's, he's not going to let me drive this thing in. He doesn't trust me. Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks or Jim Lovell realizes his faux pas is, um, I'm sorry, Jack, force of habit. Because again, on Apollo 8, he had that was his seat. Right. Then he says, get over here. She's yours to fly. <laughs> and, uh, it's a neat <laughs> moment. Whether it really yeah. happened that way or not doesn't matter. But, uh, and, you know, they get in their proper seats and Kevin Bacon does uh, the things that his job was supposed to do to make the reentry happen. And obviously it did. So, yeah, they do a good job of making Jim Lavelle seem like a real stand up guy. I think his particularly his attitude towards the end was something that really stuck with me about how, you know, he never, he never made it on the moon. Right. But the focus shouldn't be, did he make it on the moon or not? The focus was how many people saved his life, how many people worked tirelessly to to bring him back home, like he said. And, you know, that, that, that was such a special and incredible thing that happened. And, you know, his book and the way he chose to view that situation in such a positive light when really it was like a huge disaster. I think that's what's so moving about about his experience. Yes, and Ed Harris, is, uh, as Gene Krantz says it, and whether this conversation really happened or not, uh, you hear uh, Joe Spano's character, again, Chris Kraft, say uh, the reporter guy is asking, you know, uh, what if they don't make it back? And he says something like, well, this could be our, our biggest tragedy. And, and Ed Harris immediately says, I beg to differ, sir. This is going to be our finest hour. Oh my gosh, I'm tearing up just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, this, yeah. No, I mean, it, it's finest. it's extremely moving because it is about perspective. And I mean, I think his book was about perspective and the movie's about perspective. You know, it, yeah. it could have been a huge tragedy. It was prevented. And he's choosing to see this as a highlight in his life. You know, life, he spent all his life wanting to get on the moon. And that's not what happened. Because sometimes that's not what happens in life. You know, what what we want to happen. But his attitude and his perspective, I think, is just, you know, and, and, and Ed Harris's line there, too. It's it's just, you know, very true. It, it turned out to be a great success. And at least... In the film, you got, uh, as they're going around the dark side of the moon, you have uh, Jim Lovell daydreaming about what it would have been like. And you get this yeah. sequence where you see Tom Hanks coming down the lunar module ladder and walking on the moon and picking up some of the moon dirt. Uh, and he's daydreaming about what that would have been like. And, uh, uh, and on the audio track, uh, the real Jim Bubble says, it's pretty much what you just said. You know, that's all I could do was was dream about what that would have been like based on what his colleagues had experienced and would experience on the later missions. Uh, but he never got that. But at least he, he thought it was nice that Ron Howard put that in there where his character is seen walking on the moon, even if it is just yeah. a dream. Yeah, that is really nice. Well, were there are there any other scenes or, or facts that we haven't touched on yet? Oh, don't make me fall down this <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I was looking at the a list of inaccuracies in the movie, but I don't care. Uh, the movie oh, yeah, caught the on. spirit of what was yeah. going on, and uh, when I told my teacher they've got the smartest men in the world working to bring those guys back. We see in this movie that that was true. And uh, Tom Hanks said, oh, there's an interesting thing. At the end, when you hear uh, his voiceover as Lovell, he talks about, you know, we see, I don't know what, 40 guys in Mission Control. And, and, and he said there were thousands of people that were all doing jobs that were essential to make that mission a successful failure as yeah. they called it. Uh, uh, the captain of the aircraft carrier sure uh, was the real Jim Lovell. Oh really? Oh yeah. I didn't realize that. Very cool. 
Yeah, and uh, Ron Howard wanted to put him in an admiral's uniform, and uh, uh, Lovell said, uh, no, I retired as a captain. I'll just wear my own uniform, and he did. Mm, humble uh, those, to the end. Yeah. Uh, he, he wore his own uh, uh, captain, Navy captain uniform for that scene. And Marilyn Very Lovell cool. uh, in the uh, liftoff sequence, uh, you see her... I didn't know this till I watched it with the commentary track on the other day. You see her very briefly directly in front of Kathleen Quinlan playing her in the in oh, the, very cool in the grandstand watching the uh, the liftoff. So yeah, uh, Ron Howard took care of his people and his friends yeah. and his family. In a way, it's, it's sort of a metaphor for filmmaking too, because you know you see a movie. And you don't think about all the work that goes in, all the people that are involved. You, you know, we think about the, the main stars, the director, but it's a huge team. So in a way, it's kind of, you know, this this uh, mission is a metaphor or this movie is a metaphor for that, too. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, you know, so many times uh, we get to the end of a movie and unless it's a Marvel movie with the hidden scenes at the end, we're pretty much <laughs> out of there when the credits are yeah. I, I know I'm heading for the restroom. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, uh, for sure there are, especially nowadays with, with all the, uh, the CGI, all these, you know, there may be a, a crew that makes one five second sequence, uh, digitally to be inserted in a film and, but they, all five of those people get credit and there's a lot of these little yeah. crews and you see that, well, that was what was going on with the space program. My right, dad, right. you know, working in Grand Prairie, Texas, maybe okayed a piece of equipment that Grumman put on the lunar module. Wow. Two years later or whatever. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's definitely a collaborative effort, uh, both the space program and filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Good point. Well, I guess this brings me to my last couple of questions for you then. Uh, you know, why, why do you think, if you could sum up what we've been talking about, why do you think you've seen this movie so many times? Like, why do you keep coming back to it? I... <laughs> You're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Crying is okay. This was so real to me when it really happened. Yeah. And when I, and we didn't see uh, the splashdown on television. I don't know if it was because we were in school or what. But when I see those red and white parachutes open at the end, it's like, yeah, we win. Mm. The good guys win. The nerds win. Yeah. Uh, all the steely-eyed missile men. <laughs> that's, uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. How, how would you pitch this to someone that, that hasn't seen it before? Uh, one, uh, got the most accurate looking, not really NASA, NASA footage <laughs> ever shot. <laughs> uh, they, uh, when Howard first started work on this they thought they would be able to just use nasa footage of the saturn 5 taking off and all like that and they looked at that stuff and it was great footage but from 1970 to what was it 1995 when this was made uh the quality of, of film itself was just so much better and uh, uh so they recreated uh the launch, the the ice coming off the outside of the rocket ship as it went up, uh, the the fire shooting out. They you know they had to recreate all that, and uh, they did an amazing job. And, and Jim Lovell said, uh, "There's a shot from overhead with the rocket coming almost straight at the camera and then flying by." He said, "There's no way in real life you could have gotten that shot because you had to have." clear airspace but if they would have been able to park a helicopter up there hovering to get that shot that's exact he said that's exactly what it would look like and uh, 
the uh, stage separations when they're jerked around inside the spacecraft from the sudden inertia. Uh, he said, that's what we felt. He had a great line there, the character, small part, uh, uh, named uh, Gunther Vent, a German rocket scientist that you see in the scene where they're suiting up. And in the book, he said, you knew they meant business when you felt Gunther Bent put his foot on your shoulder and pull that seat belt tight. And uh, because they had to be strapped in so hard for that liftoff and for those stage separations. You knew they wow. meant business when you felt Gunther Bent put his foot on your shoulder and pull that seat belt tight. Uh, wow. And uh, he said, this was in the book, and then you see it in the movie, and he says, and and the weightless, uh, you know, you see things floating around, and it's not CGI things. They went up in the vomit comet and, and took those shots, or you see uh, uh, Bill Paxton. God rest his soul. We just lost him last yeah, year. Yeah, I know. Uh, doing somersaults and the little segment where they're supposed to be doing the TV broadcast and just having so much fun. Lovell says, that's what we did. <laughs> you know, we had as much fun up there as we did work. We did a lot of work, but we found time for our fun and there was no other time when they could have that experience of oh, floating so around. Nice. And, and, that. and so by watching it, you know, you get an idea of what it was like for these guys. Yeah, and they were my heroes growing up. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I followed the space program fairly closely up through uh, the Apollo, and then after it turned into space shuttles, you know, and I had grown up into a young adult and was more interested in other things. I kind of lost track, but uh, they're the character uh, who's again a, a real person, Deke Slate, yeah. played by. Uh, What's his name? Chris Ellis. Uh, and, uh, Lovell introduces him as the head astronaut. He was one of the original Mercury 7, but he didn't get the fly because of uh, some medical condition he had. And near the end of the Apollo program, or in fact, it was the end of the Apollo program. Uh, this wasn't a moonshot, but it was more of a public relations shot. It's called the Apollo Soyuz where uh, mm. an Apollo uh, command module docks with uh, a Russian Soyuz in, uh, in the early effort to cool down the Cold War. And uh, Chris Kraft says, told, uh, Deke, uh, told uh, whoever decides, well, Deke Slayton actually decided uh, who went up on, uh, on a mission. He says, but Chris Kraft or somebody said, we screwed Deke around long enough. He's going up this time. So Deke got to take his ride. Uh, oh, wow. Apollo uh, Soyuz mission. He was one of the first astronauts picked, but, but the last of those first astronauts to actually get to go into space. Wow. Incredible. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to get the excitement of what that time was about, this is the movie to watch. Maybe yeah. paired, maybe paired with the right stuff. Mm, yeah, that's a great film too. Uh-huh. Well, John, this has been so fun and so incredibly informative as always. <laughs> I loved all those uh, anecdotes that you had about you know how your own life intertwined with this event and also with the movie and you know. It, it just goes to show the films can be really special and very personal. And, you know, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Uh, really appreciate having you on. Uh, where, where can people find you? Where can you, where can they find me? Uh, <laughs> uh, February, if you want to be found. <laughs> if, if, if you want to drive up to Pilot Point, Texas in uh, February 18th is when we open. Uh, our little community theater up here called the Garage Door Theater at the Pilot Point Community Opera House is presenting A Few Good Men, and I will be appearing in that. Uh, and uh, I'm going to audition for, now that I'm fully retired from teaching, uh, I've got a little bit more time. I'm going to audition for a couple of play, uh, community theater shows this weekend. I've 
whether I get cast or not, I don't know. But yeah, uh, uh, A Few Good Men at the Pilot Point Garage Door Theater in February, opens February 18th. I play a little part that was played by Jack Nicholson in the movie. Nice. <laughs> and uh, I've got to lose a few pounds so I'll look good in a Marine uniform. Uh, <laughs> well, that's awesome, John. Thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, got to think about your next your next episode and have you back soon. Oh, I would love to. I would love to. Thank you.